Good evening, everybody. So I'm aware I'm, I'm uh, preaching opposite the Super Bowl. Uh, not quite yet, right? I've got, I've got a half hour, and then my time is up. Um, so I, I don't think I'm going to be going uh, overly long. Uh, but uh, if in your bulletin, uh, we have Psalm 49, uh, which you can follow along with uh, if you want. Just a few words about where we are as a church. If you're new here, <clears throat> we are really spending uh, this whole spring up through Easter talking about worship. And in this evening service, we're specifically going through the Psalms, which is a, uh, a big part of the, we could say, sort of the index of worship in the Bible, uh, where it talks a lot about worship uh, in the different Psalms. And so uh, we're up to Psalm 49, and I'll be reading the whole thing. And then uh, at the end, as our uh, tradition is, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and the response is, thanks be to God. So hear the word of God from Psalm 49. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble? when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and, the, and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, and after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go down to the generation of fathers who will never see again light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, well, we have uh, a psalm that says that it's a riddle uh, in, in some ways. Now, uh, it's not a riddle necessarily in the sense that we might think of like a puzzle, uh, but you might say that word riddle could be called a, uh, something for the wise to ponder on, something that makes you think, uh, something that uh, you have to think through. Uh, so I'm going to walk you through this. With just a really a, a few points uh, to bring out, uh, and just overall, I would say this is uh, you could almost call it a wisdom psalm. It's presenting itself as wisdom for the wise to really ponder on. So let's think about that. Uh, the first <coughs> point I would just make is uh, that this psalm teaches that there's life after death. Uh, that might be something that might not uh, seem too surprising to you, but there's a common misperception. Uh, that the Old Testament doesn't teach life after death. I don't know if you've ever heard that taught by people, that it was sort of a New Testament thing. In the Old Testament, the people didn't really believe in life after death or didn't really think about it. 
uh, and so on. Uh, and yet it's very clearly here where he says, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol and he will receive me. Uh, in general, just I don't want to give you a, a lengthy case about this, about the Old Testament, but uh, I'll just point to a few things. The first of all is if you read the New Testament and you read the interaction of Jesus with the Sadducees, the Sadducees was a group of scholars at the time who taught there was no life after death. And if you look at his interactions with them, he's not saying, well, I am God incarnate, I'm giving you a new revelation, let me tell you something you didn't know. His interaction with them is actually, how could you miss it? It's in scripture, uh, and if you knew the scriptures, uh, and you knew the power of God, you would know uh, that there was life after death. Um, now, the, um, uh, the Sadducees, one of their distinctives was that they only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, they didn't accept any of the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, but Jesus, of course, quotes the Old Testament, uh, quotes the Torah, uh, the books of Moses, in refuting them. Uh, and so he's saying, even if you just restricted yourself to the first five books, you would still believe this if you understood the scriptures. Uh, now, I put a whole bunch of additional scriptures in there that you can look at at your leisure. I'm not going to go through them all, but I'll just give you uh, a couple points uh, to bring out. Uh, again, from the, uh, from the Torah, from the first five books, uh, in the Law of Moses, uh, there is a ban on mediums. It says, you shall not tolerate someone to live among you who is a medium. Uh, and what is a medium? A medium is someone who talks to the dead. Someone who uh, calls them. And there's a very strange story later on in the Old Testament of someone uh, who goes to a medium and she calls up uh, a dead man. And as far as we can tell, it's not a trick. Uh, it really is a, um, a dead man talking uh, to them. And uh, so the whole, you know, if you think about it, the assumption of outlawing mediums presumes that people believed in mediums, right? That they believed that the dead could be talked to. Uh, and so even the prohibition of this uh, was something that implied that uh, generally people did believe that you could uh, talk to the dead, uh, that they didn't cease to exist. Uh, and I'll just give you one other point without belaboring this too much. The, uh, you know, think about where did the Jews come from when they came into the promised land when Moses gave them the law uh, in the first place? Uh, they came from Egypt. Right? Well, if you were to look on a map uh, or learn something about Egypt today even, what is like the single most prominent thing that we know about Egypt? Pyramids, right? What did they build the pyramids for? To escort their kings into the afterlife, right? They had an intense belief in the afterlife. They built entire pyramids uh, to give treasures to their kings to take uh, to the afterlife. And so in general, the people of the ancient world were intensely interested in afterlife. It's not some kind of strange concept for them. They were very, very much interested uh, in the afterlife. And of course, there was many strange teachings that went around about that, but it shows you that there really was a uh, you know, great concern and interest uh, about that. Now, maybe one of the reasons for confusion uh, is this word Sheol, which is used in our uh, psalm here uh, several times. If you look in generally Old Testament, it gets used a number of places, and it's a sort of generic and vague term. The root of the word is actually kind of interesting. The root is the one who demands. Uh, Sheol comes from the same verb that is used to demand. Uh, and it's really sort of saying that the, the grave or death is the demanding one, that no one escapes its demands. And um, 
In general, uh, it's a, you could say, an idiom or a, a, a language of talking about death. The way we might say, you know, uh, someone went to the grave. Uh, that doesn't mean that we don't believe in the afterlife, but we might say, well, you know, people are going to the grave. Uh, it's an idiom in general for death. Uh, and so sometimes people will say, well, that just means that they, you know, they viewed all the dead people went to the same place and there was, that was the end of it. Uh, but if you look here, you see, for instance, in verse 18, uh, that uh, the psalmist says, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, uh, and he will receive me. Uh, and really, you could say this whole psalm is about life after death. Um, he's really, you could say, you know, the riddle that he presents is, why should you trust in your riches when you know you're going to die? and therefore ponder on what is your ultimate goal uh, in all of this. Um, so uh, in general, uh, the word Sheol doesn't mean some kind of Greek view of Hades uh, or something like that. It really is just a, a metaphor for uh, the language of, of death. And yet there's clearly a picture of being saved out of that. Uh, another confusion perhaps that people uh, think of when they think of uh, the Old Testament uh, maybe not thinking about heaven, is because actually there's quite a few uh, pictures of focus on heaven in the Old Testament that are very, very concrete. They talk about lands and nations uh, and sitting under your tree with a vine uh, and so on. Uh, and a lot of people would say, well, this is only talking about uh, future generations uh, and it's not talking about heaven. And there's really an underlying assumption there which is the assumption that heaven is something completely ethereal, something really wispy and spiritual. And if the Bible is talking about uh, living with God in eternity and having lands and houses and cities and nations, that must not be talking about heaven. Uh, and yet what we see all through scripture is that the Bible gives a very concrete view of heaven. It gives a really concrete view of living with a garden and a city and nations and going to worship uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so, uh, that is expressed, for instance, in Job. I think I put the, uh, uh, yeah, the uh, verse from Job here. He says, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, uh, and I shall see for myself and my eyes behold. There really is in the Bible not a teaching that we just get become sort of wispy spirits, but that we actually have a bodily resurrection, that we live with God in the body, and that was the hope in the Old Testament as well, that um, there would be a resurrection, that there would be, uh, as, as Job said, I would stand before God in my flesh, uh, in my person. All right, so that's basically just to say that um, it is not a strange outlier from the Old Testament to say that there's a belief in, in eternal life. It was actually something of great concern to them, something that they did uh, pay attention to, and it's really the focus of this psalm. So let me focus in then on how this psalm uh, talks about that uh, riddle, so to speak. The question that's presented is essentially, why should I fear anything in this world? Uh, if you think about it in your life, how much role does fear play in your life? Uh, most people, when asked in the polls and so on, uh, are not actually as afraid of physical things happening to them as they are afraid of what people will think about them. Right? We have an intense fear of being judged uh, and we have a fear of, secondarily, you could say, of uh, being sort of uh, viewed as a failure 
uh, of not having accomplished uh, the things that we wanted to accomplish. Uh, well, this psalm uh, turns that around and says, well, if our eyes are on the future or on, uh, on heaven, why should we fear anybody? What can they do to us? And Jesus, of course, takes up this kind of language, right? Do not fear those who can only kill your body, right? But fear him, God, who can uh, cast your soul into hell and alternatively can also bring you to himself with eternal life. Um, a lot of this uh, psalm, I don't know if you noticed it, if you're familiar with the Bible and you've read through the book of Ecclesiastes, did you hear kind of tones of Ecclesiastes in the psalm? It's sometimes called the vanity theme in scripture. It's not just in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a lot of psalms that have a similar theme like this uh, where there is a, a refrain, the things of this world are passing away. Don't put your weight uh, on the things of this world. Uh, and even don't worry about what people think about you because they are gonna be passing away. And why do you care about their opinions? Because they too uh, will pass on. Now, a lot of people when they read Ecclesiastes or they read uh, Psalms like this, uh, they don't like it. They would say, well, that sounds depressing. Uh, it doesn't sound hopeful to say that all the things of this world are passing away. And by the way, that's a, again a New Testament theme as well. You read the book of James, you read Jesus, a lot of different places. In the New Testament it says, don't fixate on this world, the things of this world are passing away. Uh, so again, we can't try to put the Old Testament, New Testament opposing each other this way. Um, but if you actually read Ecclesiastes and you read these vanity psalms, it's not just saying, well, everything passes away and that's it, end of story. Right? It's saying, don't put your trust in these things, but rather put your anchor on God himself. And so in the book of Ecclesiastes, after sort of dismissing and showing how everything that we tend to put our trust in or all the things that we fear in this world are passing away, then he ends with, and there's actually a refrain throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes, uh, a refrain of, but God is not passing away. God is not uh, light. God is heavy, and God is the one who you can rest on. What he does lasts forever, uh, and so we can put him as our anchor. And so uh, if we have our eternal perspective, we would say it's not depressing to think about the things of this world passing away because we have a deeper anchor. We, have, uh, we can rest on God the rock who is not passing away uh, and who will bring us to himself uh, in eternity. And so he is the one who is the eternal one on whom we can rest. And that is sometimes in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, given this catchphrase, hope. Right? Hope, that's the title of the sermon I gave, is not like, I'm just hoping, uh, but it means having an anchor, having a trust, having a sense that you are standing on the rock, which is Jesus Christ, uh, and you're not blown about by winds, that you have a sure sense of that future hope, uh, which is coming. And when you have that hope, then you are not blown about by the things of this world. You're not worried what people think about you. You're not worried about where your next meal is going to come and so on. Because you can say, whatever happens, I know I have a rock uh, that I stand on, which is Jesus, and that he will bring me to him uh, at that last day. Uh, and so, um, you know, in some time I could end the sermon now and just say, you know, this is really the point of the, of the psalm uh, is... Don't worry, you know, again, look at those people, you know, he's like, look at those people, they seem so successful. I mean, they've even named countries after themselves, right? Um, and yet, they are passing away. Uh, they will disappear. And you think about how true that is, right? Because if you think about 
All the kings of great importance at the time of David. Can any of you name any of those you know, lands and, and their kings at this point? Well, maybe if you were like a Bible trivia scholar, you might be able to list some of the names of those uh, kingdoms around there. But there's a lot that weren't recorded in the Bible and they're gone. Uh, and yet they felt themselves very successful uh, at the time. Now, just one uh, reaction sometimes people have to this message. Uh, there's actually a song by Johnny Cash. Who, Johnny Cash has a lot of great Christian songs, but he has this one that I really don't like. <laughs> uh, it's called, You're So Heavenly Minded, You're No Earthly Good. Right? And that's sometimes the accusation. If you really take this to heart, if you really believe that things of this world are passing away and you're not worldly, uh, then you're going to be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Uh, and yet the Bible uh, flips that on its head uh, and actually says, if you're heavenly minded, it'll actually be much more uh, earthly good. Uh, and so both the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, talk about how this hope actually leads us to uh, a greater, uh, you could say even in this world, uh, a greater impact. Uh, so let me just list uh, a few of these here. Uh, first of all, it says that our priority uh, has to be heart change. And if you look, if you ever do, if you have one of these computer Bibles, uh, you can do a word study on the word heart in the Old Testament. And there's hundreds of cases where God says, you know, I care about your heart. I don't care about your accomplishments. I don't care about uh, your religious rituals. Even though he gave them religious rituals to do, he said, if you do these things and your heart is far from me, they, they don't count at all. They don't uh, have any weight uh, whatsoever. Uh, and so eternal life starts with a heart which has changed. Uh, it, it starts with a heart uh, which comes to God. Um, that is something that uh, we often look at and say, well, you know, don't the structure of society matter? Uh, we live in a generation in which people are highly concerned about justice, highly concerned about uh, people uh, having right structures uh, for uh, prospering and so on. Uh, but if you think about it, if the whole society is corrupt and everybody is trying to rip everybody else off, and everybody is just worried about what everybody else thinks about them, what structure could save that society? What structure could make it right? If, the, if people's hearts are not changed, then you can have all the good structures you want and every judge that has power to do justice will be corrupt and taking bribes and trying to make himself look good. Uh, and uh, everybody you know, that you think of will be uh, you know, not trying to enact justice but trying to make it look like they're enacting justice. So heart change actually changes societies uh, in a much greater way because when people start to say, I'm actually uh, want to do what God wants me to do because I want to please God, that actually leads to heart change, that leads to actual just structures and just societies. If everybody is saying, there is no future, there is no hope, and all I need to do is just make myself look good, uh, then you have a hollow society and an unjust society. And so actually heart change does lead to change uh, in this world. Um, Another thing I would say is it gives you endurance. Um, one of the things that this says, and we see all through uh, the Bible as well, is don't be surprised when good things get undone. You know, this, this psalm is, you know, in some ways talking about the rich who trust in their riches and they will pass away. But you also see 
uh, sometimes good things passing away. You see that in Ecclesiastes, not just the evil dies, but also the good person dies uh, as well. And so bad things happen uh, to people who love God uh, as well. Even when you have someone who uh, really wants to do justice uh, and is a great leader, and you can probably think uh, in history of people who have been uh, great influences. We even have Martin Luther King uh, Day and uh, Lincoln Day and Washington Day this month. Um, they died, right? Even great leaders uh, don't last forever. The Bible says don't be surprised uh, at that. And that actually gives us endurance because it says ultimately we can trust that God has his plans and that I don't have to get burned out when the plans of my hands get undone. Uh, and I can guarantee you if you live long enough, you will find something that you planned for that was a good thing get undone. Uh, you will find that uh, it, uh, it, you know, even good plans uh, sometimes go astray because of the things of this world. Uh, a third thing uh, that this strengthens us to do is that we can, uh, to use a, a modern phrase, we can speak truth to power uh, without fearing them. Uh, if you think about you know, some of the stories of scripture where someone like walks into the presence of the king and they say, king, uh, uh, God is above you and I'm not going to obey you when you tell me to do this evil thing. Uh, could you really have the strength to do that if you didn't believe that God had your back uh, and that you really would stand with him at that last day? Uh, in general, if you don't believe uh, in eternal life, uh, you are going to start to retract your vision and you're going to start to say, I need to not shake the boat or I might lose everything that I have uh, and I need to really protect my little domain. And so you're much more timid and fearful than somebody who believes in eternal life. Uh, and finally, I would say that believing in eternal life also breaks the cycle of vengeance. Um, that uh, one of the things uh, that we see here is that uh, the psalmist is putting these things in the hands of God. Uh, and so uh, in general, we see through many of the psalms uh, a, you know, a sort of crying out against enemies. And yet the psalm itself is saying, God, I'm putting this in your hands. I'm not taking personal vengeance. Now, David was an interesting figure because in some cases, he was the king and he was called to do justice and to slay his enemies and to set up uh, things with, through that authority. But many times he was not in a situation where he could bring about justice. And uh, he never took personal vengeance. Even when he had a chance to kill uh, Saul, the king who was trying to kill him, he refused to do that. He never took personal uh, vengeance when he didn't have a, a role of authority that actually gave him the right uh, to do, uh, to execute the law. Uh, and I would say this has intense practical benefit for us as well also. I will just admonish you all sometime in the future, uh, if it hasn't already happened to you, uh, you will not just be disappointed at plans going astray, but you will probably be the victim of injustice. Uh, and I have known people who have had serious, have really had serious injustices in their lives. Uh, where they've been taken to court, they have maybe lost something, or uh, someone lied to them in a deep and serious way, uh, or you know, fill in the blank, of really serious injustices in this life. Uh, and you know, we do have systems, both church courts and civil courts, where you can try to get justice. But if you read through Ecclesiastes, if you read through a lot of the Bible, uh, there is no final justice uh, in this world. 
and I have seen people literally go crazy because of that. I've seen a person literally institutionalized because he could not give it up. He could not let go of the fact that he had suffered injustice. Uh, and there was a desire for revenge. There was, uh, it, it just he started to focus in uh, and dwell on this and, and literally ended up institutionalized. Uh, it is a serious thing to, to harbor a desire for vengeance in your heart can literally destroy you. Uh, and I would admonish you, don't let a bitter root grow. Uh, because uh, we deeply want justice, and you are not going to get it in this life, and I'll say that again, don't let that bitter root grow, because there will be things that are done to you that were not your fault, uh, and yet the cry of the Psalms is to give those over to God, uh, and not let that root grow in your heart, but to give it over to God, even when you have been the victim of great injustice. And of course, uh, that can make the world a better place too if we, if we don't all continually try to bring vengeance on each other. We can break the cycle of, well, now you did something, but your, your vengeance was too much, so now I'm going to do vengeance back to you, and we can, and we can break that cycle. Um, the next thing I just want to point out about this psalm uh, is to really focus in on that word ransom, uh, which is used. I don't know if you notice that there. It's actually used uh, in a couple places. In verse 7 it says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. And then in verse eight, for the ransom of their life is costly and should never suffice that he could live forever and not see the pit. Uh, and then, so that sort of sets up the premise, no human can ransom another uh, from death. But then in verse 15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol and will receive me. So. One way to, to summarize uh, this point is just say you can preach the gospel entirely from the Old Testament. Uh, if you think about it, that's what the apostles and Jesus did, right? They didn't have the New Testament yet, and yet they went into the synagogues and they preached the gospel. And uh, it's really clear in this psalm that no man, no human, can pay for another person's life that they would be redeemed from death. We are all essentially under a death sentence. Um, we are slaves to the moral law that demands justice. And if we have done evil, we have forfeited our lives. Uh, and there needs to be a payment. And here it says that no person can make that payment for you, but God will provide uh, that ransom. Uh, and this really points forward to Christ. If you think about this, uh, if Christ was just a human, uh, he could not make that payment. This says no man, no human can ransom another. So it really points to the divinity of Christ that for his ransom to be uh, something that could save us, uh, he had to be God. He had to have uh, the infinite value that God had. And so verse 15 says, God will ransom my soul. Uh, Jesus died as a human, but he was not merely human. He, and a mere human could not die. Uh, or pay for you. Uh, let me just say a little bit about that word ransom. It brings to mind a kidnapping, right, of someone who's been kidnapped and they, and they demand ransom. Uh, there's a incorrect theology that sometimes goes around that people think that Satan is the kidnapper and that God paid off Satan on the cross. I don't know if you've ever come across that uh, view of the cross, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, Satan was defeated when Jesus died on the cross, Satan tried to tempt Jesus to not go to the cross. 
and Jesus went to the cross and in doing that defeated Satan uh, in his plans. It was not Satan's victory uh, that Jesus died, but rather it was Satan's defeat. Uh, the payment is really the payment of justice, that our lives are forfeit due to our sin, uh, and justice demands that there be a payment in blood, uh, and Jesus satisfied the demands of the moral law, which God himself uh, created. So this is also a theme, actually, through a lot of the Psalms. If you've been reading through the Psalms, you've probably noticed there's quite a few that are working from within the Old Testament system and talking about temple sacrifices and animal sacrifices and so on, and yet are saying, uh, this is not sufficient, uh, that God is not satisfied by the mere blood of animals uh, and goats and so on, that there has to be something more. And here, you know, it's implied, he says, that God will be the one to ransom me, and that there is no price, uh, even animal sacrifice, uh, which can really suffice uh, to save me from death. So you could ask them, why the animal sacrifices? Why have this whole complicated system? If we have, even in the Old Testament, so many pointers saying that sacrifice of animals is not sufficient. Uh, and there's a lot in the New Testament that talks about how these sacrifices of animals pointed to the work of Christ. And they actually point to a very deep point, uh, which maybe is not so easy to explain uh, in our society today. I put a quote from C.S. Lewis on the front of the bulletin and I'm not gonna read the whole thing. But it's, it's one of the stranger stories that C.S. Lewis ever wrote called Till We Have Faces. If you've read it, you, you probably thought, well, that was strange. Uh, and a whole lot one could say about it, but there's two characters in it. There's the priest and there's the Greek philosopher. And all the way through, you think that the Greek philosopher is the good guy. Uh, and yet at the end, spoiler alert, uh, the Greek philosopher says, I actually knew less than the priest did. Uh, and what the priest knew, even though the priest had many uh, incorrect teachings, was that there had to be blood sacrifice for sin. And the Greek philosopher, it was all about ideas. Uh, fundamentally, Christianity has a lot of ideas, has a lot of theology. It's not fundamentally about ideas. It's fundamentally about a work which God has done in the physical world to atone for our sin. He has entered in, he has done stuff, uh, and it's great to think good ideas about what that means, how it plays out, and so on. But fundamentally, we have a need to, to have justice satisfied with a blood sacrifice. And so I, I think I put it in the, the outline, Christianity is a bloody religion. And I don't know if you, you noticed in the first song that we sang, a little bit odd of a picture, right? There was a fountain of blood shooting out from Jesus, and we were all bathed in this blood. So, I, you know, it's, it's kind of a metaphor, you know, but there's a real core of truth there, which is that we are not a religion of ideas, fundamentally, even though ideas play an important role in our discipleship. Uh, we're fundamentally about the act of God to save us, to intervene in this world, uh, in the flesh, uh, to die for us. And so the blood uh, of Christ is a central theme in scripture, and it's uh, looked forward to by every animal sacrifice that was killed uh, in the Old Testament, uh, all the way up through, uh, through the time of Christ. Uh, and so, when we look at this verse and it says, uh, but God will ransom my soul uh, from Sheol, uh, that is pointing forward to the work of Christ. And it really is life-changing if you get it down. I, 
And again, I'll just say, I've been around long enough. Um, there are so many Christians who are bound up in fear over what people think about them. Uh, and if you just get nothing but that, you know, what Paul said, it is a small thing to me uh, whether you judge me. I don't even judge myself because God is the one who will save me, paraphrasing. Uh, uh, that, that can be a life-changing thing just in and of itself to say, why am I living in fear? And so uh, I'll finish with this, uh, you know, this riddle uh, that he says. I will incline my ear to a proverb. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who make fun of me for the stupid things I do surrounds me? That's, well, I'm sorry, I put in my own words there, but uh, you get the idea. Um, and so uh, let me just uh, leave you with that to the gospel fundamentally telling us to lift up our eyes to see eternity uh, and to uh, preach the gospel of the blood of Christ. Let's pray.